Go ahead and turn to Hosea chapter 10. Someone read for us verses uh, 1 and 2, please. Hosea 10, 1 and 2. Jonathan, thank you. Okay, so a luxuriant vine producing fruit for himself, what sort of picture is that supposed to create in our minds? What idea is being communicated? I think at least we'd say self-sufficient, right? Okay. Okay. There are, um, there are assorted plants that are what are called self-fertile. In other words, you don't need two or more of them in order to produce fruit. You can just get fruit from one of them by itself. If, if that is the representation of the heart of the people of Israel, what sort of attitudes are going on? We talked about being self-sufficient. What does that look like? Who do they think they don't need? They don't need God, they think. Okay? What else do they maybe think that they don't need to do? What did God require of them? Sacrifices? Okay. What else? What's that? Obey him, right? So part of that was sacrifices as an external sign. Part of that was their internal heart attitudes, the ways they treated the people around them, observing the feasts, teaching the priests were supposed to teach the people, and the people were supposed to teach their children God's law. They probably thought, we don't need to do this, things are going so well. And then in the next little part, what, what, where did they end up? Before we get there, though, in, in verse 1. Okay. Let's explore that a little bit more specifically. What? This happened and then this happened. What do we see? Twice repeated in verse 1. Okay. All right. Assuming that their self sufficiency, that their provision for themselves is Okay. And what altars do we think these probably are? Okay. 
Yeah, so the altars are probably Baal and the sacred pillars are probably the Ashtoreth, right? So um, they are looking around and saying, I am being successful. And they're giving credit for their success to idols, to false gods. If things are going well, um, what do we tend to give credit to in our present world? Our own works. Could we potentially, let's say that, um, and this is difficult, right? Because I think it's easy to fall into a pattern of laziness and no ambition to do great things for God. But I think it's also, and has been, at least in larger churches, more popular to say, because we are a big church, God must be pleased with us. So, whereas the people of Israel were building altars and sacred pillars, the people of the modern church in America, not always, but in many instances, are putting trust in their schemes and their efforts as being the reason for their success. Why are people getting saved and coming to Jesus? Because we've got a great worship team. Why are people getting uh, involved in church? Because we have a beautiful building. Why are people um, doing this, that, and the other thing? Because we have lots of money. And they confuse the fact of prosperity with the source of it. Or they get confused about where it's coming from. And the people of Israel said, we're going to give credit to false idols. And in our modern day, it's really easy for us to say, hey, that went really well. We did a good job. Hey, that went really well. All these things, programs, buildings, whatever, are the reason for the success. And if they don't fail, conversely, or if they don't do well, conversely, we say, oh, we need more money. Oh, we need a different building. Oh, we need a better program. What is the common factor in blessing in this and in the present day? When there is actually blessing taking place, where is it coming from? From God. Right. So if we feel like we are not being successful, what should we do? Pray. Now there are sometimes actions we need to take, but sometimes we just get so caught up in the busyness of activity that we're not praying. So if you're praying and you're busy doing what you believe God wants you to do, great. But if you're just busy and you say the solution is more busyness and you're not praying, the problem is not, probably not the amount of effort you're putting into it. The problem is... Uh, most likely that you're not relying on God to accomplish what only He can do. And if things are going well, and our conclusion is to say, hey, we did pretty good. Um, we're in the dangerous spot that Herod found himself in Acts 12 when he gave what he thought was a good speech, and the people in flattery said, the voice of a God and not of a man. Herod's like, yeah, I think so. God struck him dead. 
And I'm not saying that that is the immediate consequence for pride, but it should make us uneasy if we're following the same trajectory as the guy that God strikes down for blasphemy. So, the more that we appear to prosper, let us not follow the pattern of the Israelites and give credit to false gods as the reason for the apparent prosperity. Because what's God's response? Verse 2, and Jonathan, you mentioned this a moment ago, what's God's response? Yeah, but notice his description at the first phrase of verse 2. Their heart is what? Faithless. Um, this is not a great illustration, but um, perhaps it illustrates it. Sarah made breakfast for us this morning. If I come over here and I'm like, Ben, thank you so much for that amazing breakfast. It's a stupid illustration, but it illustrates the point. I'm doing, I'm giving credit where it should not be. Right? And Ben is one thing, but if I were to go to someone who's not my wife, someone who's immoral and hates God and all of that, and I'm like, you know, just thanking her for all of the things that my wife is doing, that's even more the picture that we see here in this verse. So God says your heart is faithless. You're giving credit where it doesn't belong, and instead of strengthening your relationship with me through your gratitude and worship and relationship with me, you are sort of like going all these other places. And that's then what God leads to their destruction. It's, I, was the building of the altars and the pillars a bad thing? Yes. But the bigger issue was the fact that they were giving credit that was due to God to idols and that they were abandoning their relationship with God to pursue this relationship with idols. And the building of the pillars and the altars was just the final step and the external uh, consequence or manifestation of what was broken and sinful and wicked in their hearts. Someone uh, be willing to read, hmm, how about verses 3 through 6? Who can read verses 3 through 6 for us? Yeah, thank you. Okay. Mm -hmm. So how about verse 3? What might be going on in verse 3? When God breaks down their idols... Or they're looking around and they're saying, where's our king? 
We have no king. Why? God was supposed to be their king, right? And if God's not their king and their human king has failed them, there's no king for them at all. And the reason that they're in the spot they're in is because they had trusted in a human king instead of in God. Way back when um, Jeroboam led them away from Rehoboam, and Rehoboam was admittedly uh, kind of this upstart, young, foolish king, right? So there's, it's understandable why they did it. But ever since that moment, they had been trusting in their human king instead of in God and going their own way. And now even that king had failed them. And they're like, well, we don't have God. We don't have the king. We got nobody. That's a sad state to be in. Um, I think the parallel for us today would be that if we turn away from God, we turn to people, we turn to different kinds of pleasure that they think will satisfy us. could be as simple as something like ice cream or just food in general. could be some people turn to drunkenness. Some people could turn to like fancy kinds of uh, coffee for all it is. It doesn't matter. Like you turn to whatever it is and then you chase after that. And when that thing lets you down, you realize, I don't have the thing that I've been trusting in all this time, and I don't have God. Now, the point of the response we should have at that moment would be what? Turn back to God. Be like the prodigal son. I'm here in the pig mire eating the garbage that the pigs are eating. This is not a great place to be, but there's hope if I return that I'll find forgiveness. But the people of Israel just said, Everybody's failed us, and they seem to be, just be stuck at that moment. How about verse 4? Some uh, interesting pictures here. When it comes to covenants, had God made covenants with the people of Israel? For a people who had abandoned the true covenants with God and a relationship with God and the God's ruler and God's temple and the practice of God's worship, it's fascinating that they still had this concept of we should maybe have some kind of covenants that we have. But can you really make the sort of sacred promises that covenants are apart from a relationship with God? No. And yet they're still doing it because they know that's something that's supposed to be happening, but they don't quite know how to do it. And so it's just this empty ritualistic kind of thing where it says with worthless oaths. If God, if, if so, you know, people will say, um, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And other people have said, oh, well, I want to put my hand on another sacred book like the Quran. Or I don't want any, I don't want any book. I just swear to tell the truth by the infinite mysteries of the universe. It's a worthless oath. In the same way, if you abandon God, there is no... How do I put this? There will come a point where we are willing to break our promise to any human being, but there's something about the presence of God that binds us and concerns us and causes us to fear to keep the promises that we've made. And apart from that, there are moments where like, I really don't care. And so their, their, their O's were worthless. <laughs> this amazing picture here. 
Judgment like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. What was supposed to be, so what are you supposed to have growing in the furrows, in the spots that have been tilled in the field? What's supposed to be growing there? Crop. Your crop. Corn, soybeans, wheat, whatever, right? Supposed to have that, and instead you have poisonous weeds. I don't know what poisonous weeds they had in mind. There, um, there is an interesting plant called monkshood or aconitum, and um, apparently they used it as a poison in the Middle Ages, and um, you don't need very much of it for it to kill you. Um, there are things that could grow in the field that maybe aren't as poisonous to people, but if cows or sheep or goats eat them, maybe not goats, goats are pretty resilient, but at least cows or sheep, if they eat them, it makes them terribly sick and they die. And so farmers are always trying to dig those sorts of things out. And God's saying, in your mockery of worship of me, you're supposed to be having good grain and crops growing up, and instead you're cultivating poisonous weeds that will kill you and your children and your livestock and everything that's the whole point of your idolatry against me is going to get wiped out by these false judgments that are like the poisonous weeds in the field that are my punishment on you. And why are there weeds in the field to begin with? Well, right, but go way, 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 way back. Why are there weeds to begin with? Adam and Eve sin. So there's sort of this going back to creation motif of if, if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, and what was the basic essence of their sin? We're going to go our own way. We're going to go our own way. Weeds begin. Hosea looks at the weeds and says, this picture of God's judgment on creation is also in some ways symbolic of the sin that you're committing now, which is the exact same sin that Adam and Eve committed way back then, which is going their own way. How about verse 5? What's the calf of beth -Avon? Yep. So Jeroboam basically did a repeat of what happened on their way through the wilderness. Remember, Moses goes up on the mountain, Aaron makes golden calves, those ones get destroyed, but the idea of it's in the people's mind. And somehow that gets passed down, and Jeroboam says, hey, let's do this, perhaps because of his connection with Egypt and seeing them worship bulls as part of their gods, right? So there's a lot of references in the Old Testament to the strong bulls of Bashan or the calves of Egypt or like all that sort of thing. So Jeroboam said, let's do this. And, you know, people will argue and say, well, he set up an idol that was supposed to be like an idol to Baal or something. I think it was supposed to be an idol to God, but God had said, I don't want you to worship me by means of an idol. So Robert points out, verse 5, they're going to fear for the calf of beth -Avon fascinating situation to find yourself in. There's my God. I'm a little worried about Him. It's looking a little ill today. Cracks in the base of His pillars. Anybody see a problem with a God that can have cracks and that you have to be worried about? Not worried about as in that he's powerful and you should fear him, but worried about like somebody might come knock him over. Somebody might steal him and take him to be their God, which is a 
Really bizarre concept. Why would you want a god that's worse than your god as one of your gods? But that's a whole other subject. As people are mourning for it, idolatrous priests crying out over it, over its glory since it has departed. God's glory departed from the people of Israel, which is what they should have been crying out about. And instead, they're crying out about the fact that their idol can't save them from their enemies. So they're mourning over the idol the way they should have mourned over God, in the same way that they're building altars to the idol that they should have been building to God, and worshiping the idol when they should have been worshiping God. So they're kind of doing the right things at the wrong time in the wrong place with the wrong object. should warn us that it's probably possible for us to do the same thing, right? Um, how many people were really, really disappointed, maybe not most of you in here, but how many of you were really disappointed when Ohio State lost to Michigan? Or how many people were? People just distraught. How many of those same people, if it was us, and you know, in this room, we lost to Ohio, we did not we, as though we were playing on the field, which is ridiculous too, but let's say if it was our team that lost, and everybody just like, I'm going to have a terrible day today, because my team lost, how many of us are that worked up over the fact that we lied to someone last week? Or that instead of pursuing a relationship with God, we spent an hour watching funny videos. Not even talking about sinful things. There could be like really sinful things that we could be doing instead of that, but just foolish waste of time instead of pursuing a relationship with God. Does that make us distraught and concerned? The people of Israel were worried about their false idol, and we get worked up over things like sports or politics or all these other sorts of things, and we're not correspondingly worked up over whether or not we actually love and follow God wholeheartedly. So as much as we, it's easy for us to be like, you stupid Israelites, we should look in the mirror and say, in what ways am I the same? What's going to happen to the idol? Verse 6. Yeah goes to somebody else's museum or temple or whatever, right? Again, kind of a bummer if your idol gets carried off and you don't have it anymore. This helps you understand the pagan mindset a little bit, this verse, because their attitude was, we're going to fight these other people, and if we be beat them, we get to steal their gods and all their stuff. And then often they would start worshiping that god because they're like, maybe he was just having a bad day. We don't want to make him angry. So then you end up with like all these other idols sort of as part of the religious customs of a, of a country. And so they go from having uh, you know, one god to having a whole bunch of gods, not just their gods, but also gods they borrowed from other nations. And the whole practice of idolatry and of ancient religions is a fascinating topic. But the reality is they are at a point where their god is supposed to protect them. And what happens instead their God gets carried off, it says, as tribute to the king of Assyria. When your God becomes your bribe to your enemy, you have a problem. Right? And rightfully, verse 6, shame. 
But here's the thing. The shame should have produced repentance. But if shame is very wrapped up with pride, it doesn't lead to repentance. It leads to uh, coming up with our own way to get rid of the shame and restore our own name instead of turning back to God, who's the only one who can really deal with shame. Someone read for us 7 through 10, please. 7 through 10. Robert, thank you. Okay, I think we understand the picture of verse 7. How many of you have ever pruned a shrub or a tree? Or seen one? How many of you have ever seen a stick on the ground? I mean, I think we all have that, right? Uh, falls on the surface of the water, gets carried this way and that. How valuable is that? Not much. Is there any life in the stick when it falls off the tree? No. And then verse 8 is an interesting verse. Their places that they worship these false gods at, that they were so proud of, they're going to get destroyed. And then thorns and thistles are going to grow on their altars. If thorns and thistles are growing on your altars, how, um, how reputable or how glorious are they? Not very. Uh, this doesn't take very long either. Um, when, when we went down to Indiana, we went by the place where my dad grew up, and my grandparents moved out of there about 30 years ago, and probably about 15 or 20 years ago, the house got knocked down because people just kept breaking in and stealing things out of it, and nobody lived there anymore. And we were just walking around there. There's not much there. The little bits of the foundation here, little, there's a concrete pad where there used to be a big old barn a long time ago, and that's about it. And that's in 20 to 30 years. So it doesn't take long for this to take place, uh, and all of this glory of these idols, the gold and the decoration and the rituals and all these things that they would do, just to sort of get swallowed up by God's creation that he's made, and particularly, again, thorns and thistles, the sign of the curse, on this thing that was an abomination to God. When it says, to the mountains cover us and the hills fall on us, does that remind you of anything? Yeah. What were you saying, Mary? Well, it would, yeah. But yeah, the passage in Revelation, they're basically saying we would rather be buried alive than to face God's judgment. And we see that again also in the book of Revelation. There's the days of Gibeah. That's, uh, we talked about that, the thing with the sons of Benjamin. We talked about that, I think, last week. When, what is interesting about verse 10 as far as the desire? Whose desire was ruling them up to this point? 
Okay, Braden? Yeah, so their own desire. And whose desire is going to compel them now? God's. What's the double guilt, do you think? Probably other places that explain it better, but what's the first wrong thing that they did, Robert? Okay, and what would you think the other part of it might be? Yeah, I think that's probably what he has in mind. Not just did they abandon God, but they also pursued these idols in place of God. Someone read for us verses 11 through 15, please. 11 through 15. Louise, thank you. Alright, how about verse 11? Anything about this picture that stands out to you? thing that Peter says at the end of the book of John about um, or maybe Jesus said to Peter when you grow old that you're going to be taken where you don't want to go and all that kind of thing. Like, you know, Here they felt like they were free to do whatever they wanted and now they're going to be in captivity, right? Verse 12 is really interesting though in conjunction with verse 11 because well even 13 as well. So you love to thresh but now you're going to plow. What is it that needs to be sown in the fields that have been plowed? Crops, but verse 12 is taking it sort of a figurative direction. Righteousness. So sow with a view to righteousness. So you have been sowing and reaping idolatry, judgment, destruction, your own way, God's disfavor, all these sorts of things. Stop doing that, and since you would not do it willingly, I'm going to bring you into captivity so that you will plow the fields and get them ready for a harvest of righteousness. And, and sow with a view of righteousness, reap in accordance with kindness, seek the Lord until he comes to rain righteousness on you. 
Yeah, I think along those lines. I think it definitely anticipates Jesus' parable of the sower. It ties in with the illustration that Paul uses about I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. That this idea of mm, people are going their own way and it's like their hearts are like stone, they're hard, they're not ready. When it says fallow ground, what's fallow ground? Yeah, or longer. So it needs to be gotten ready, right? So he's basically, I mean, there's parallels between this imagery here and what the people of Israel were supposed to do when they met with God at Mount Sinai, right? They were supposed to uh, wash their clothes and prepare their hearts and get ready to be in God's presence. And so there's a sense in which in their pursuit of idolatry, the land has been lying fallow, unused, unready for generations. And now God says the time is both for judgment and eventually later for restoration when his people should turn back to him. In contrast, what have they done? Verse 13. Yeah, you've plowed wickedness and reaped injustice and eaten the fruit of lies. So when you start out in disobedience, it leads to injustice and deceitful lies that are the result of it. It's really interesting, I think, if you were to read these verses and then go read a passage like Galatians 6 again where it talks about reaping and sowing, because we tend to take that by itself, but we, if we put it against this Old Testament imagery, I think we see even more clearly the point that God is making. That's an aside. That one's extra. You don't want to pay for that one. <laughs> Uh, verses 13 down through 15, trusting their own way and in their warriors is going to lead to what in verse 14? Destruction, okay. And what else? Yeah, so um, like, mm, like all-out total war, okay? So sometimes when we think of war, we think, okay, the men of one country go to fight the men of another country, and some of them die, but that's kind of what you expect in war. What was Assyria known for? Vicious, cruelty their idea of warning the nations around them not to mess with them was to go into a city, kill everybody, cut off their heads, and stack up all the skulls as sort of a monument outside the city. Or what it says in this verse, not only are they fighting the soldiers, but they're going into the town and they're killing the mothers with the children. I think there's a part of us that really wrestles with how in the world can that be an appropriate judgment on the people of Israel for a nation to be so cruel and wicked. And so it's easy for us to have one of two responses. Well, God sent the Assyrians against them, but it sort of got out of hand and God couldn't do anything about it. That's one response that people would have to sort of make it seem like it's better in some way, I think. 
Um, or that God had nothing to do with it and the Assyrians just did it. You don't even take it to that extreme. But there is this, this, this development of because you trusted yourself in your own way, you are going to be destroyed. This sort of devastation is going to come to you at Bethel, the house of God, ironically, but a place of wickedness in their day because of your wickedness. At dawn, the king of Israel will be completely cut off. We talked about being afraid for our God with the people of Israel being afraid for their idol being destroyed or defeated. But I think the end of chapter 10 should cause us to fear our God, who is the true God. Because if God is so mm, deliberately focused on his people following after him, that he is willing to bring a cruel and pagan nation against them and bring many of them to the point of death to restore the hearts of his people to himself, We, we tend to emphasize God's, uh, like we like the story of the prodigal son because he wanders off, he comes back, his father gives him a hug, throws a feast, all that sort of thing. But we see the great and terrible love of God in a passage like this as well, that God is willing to use overwhelming judgment to bring us back to where they're supposed to be. And I think that's a side of God that we don't like to look at because it scares us, and it should. And that does not mean that God is any less the loving God of the story of the prodigal son. But it also means that, it's a God, that he is a God who is very serious about his people's hearts falling after him. And so to the extent that we find any correlation, any similarities between the way the Israelites are acting in these verses and things that are going on in our hearts where we find ourselves starting to wander away from God, I think the end of chapter 10 should be very sobering for us. We'll talk about chapter 11 next week. There's... Uh, really neat to see how those, those verses are used in the New Testament to refer to Jesus, and we'll talk about the relationship between those things, and um, how God is, in fact, compassionate in chapter 11, and then again in chapter 14, despite all of the, the wickedness of the people. So we'll wrap up there for this morning. Let's pray. Father, when we look at these sobering truths, I pray that you would help us to not trust in foolish things that are clearly less powerful than we are or that will fail us, not to be doing the things that we ought to do toward the wrong objects in a mockery of true worship of you, not to be so stubbornly going our own way that you have to go to extreme lengths to bring us back. And so I just pray that all these things would settle into our hearts and cause us to fear you as we ought but also to love you as you deserve. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.